Hope you're doing well today. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to finish out this chapter this morning looking at, at verses 17 through 20. So I hope you're ready for it. I hope you're ready for all that God has for you this morning. Because in today's passage, uh, things start to get exciting. Nehemiah finally shares his vision, finally shares his burden. And what we're going to see is that people rally behind him and, and they exclaim this, this phrase. They say, they say, let us rise up and build. And they're ready to roll. And they've, they've been motivated to get involved in God's plan for their city and their lives. And, and I love that phrase so much. It, it contains so much within it that I've, I've chosen to title this message uh, just that, let us rise up and build. Because I think it's time for us to get to work as well. And it's time for all of us to accept the challenge and get on board with God's plan for our lives and our families and this church. And we're going to see some keys this morning for, for doing just that. But, but before we get there, let me, let me bring you up to speed a little bit, just remind you of what we studied last week. Uh, last week we saw the preparation of evaluation or the importance of evaluating some key areas particularly as you are beginning a work for the Lord. Again, we did talk about this last week. These are areas to always kind of be an evaluation on. But, but in this context, as, as Nehemiah was beginning to work for the Lord, he evaluated some key areas, and he evaluated the people around him. And we learned that we need to do that. We need to evaluate the people around us because not everyone who's by your side is on your team. And then we need to evaluate the power in us because it is only as we die to our flesh and rise to walk in his life, in his power, through the power of the resurrection, that's when we then have the ability to accomplish things for his glory. And then last, we need to evaluate the price before us and we need to count the cost and, and then be willing to pay it. Because while salvation is absolutely a free gift, living the Christian life to God's glory will for sure cost you something. And Nehemiah evaluated all that as he conducted a, a secret mission at night with a few other men. He brought a few other men along with him to survey the city of Jerusalem because he needed to see the condition of the city for himself. And so he analyzed the situation and he visualized what could be as he went up above the city and and viewed it, viewed the wall, and, and, and he wanted to be able to see how God would work. But today, we get to see him and, and him finally speak. We get to hear what he has to say to them. He finished his evaluation. He knows what's in front of him. He knows the potential pitfalls, and he's ready for the task at hand. And now begins the process to get everyone else ready. He's been ready. He's been ready for a while, for months. And now he's in the process of getting everyone else ready to get the Jews that were in Jerusalem on board with the work that was in front of them. So what we're going to see this morning is that after Nehemiah analyzed and visualized, now he's going to verbalize and energize and even sort of improvise as it relates to his enemies. Those aren't our points this morning. But they could be if you want to work that and put that together on your own. But, but Nehemiah finally lays it out for everyone to hear. Because remember, he, he had been quiet up to this point. We saw that in verse 12. 
of Nehemiah chapter 2. He says, And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And then also down in verse 16, he says, And the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. And this was important because as we learned last week, the timing has to be right, particularly as a leader. You don't want to get out ahead of God. But when we get to verse 17, where we're going to start today, the timing is right. And once the timing is right, Nehemiah speaks his heart and motivates the Jews who were present to hear all that God had put in his heart. And listen, that is a, that's another important leadership principle. We talked last week about how this is such a good book on leadership. And, and you'll see if you, there's plenty of books written about leadership out of the book of Nehemiah and lessons from Nehemiah. But this is another one because, you know, I said last week it's dangerous for a leader to speak too soon. But it's also dangerous in a different way to speak too late. It's why you have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and be walking in the Spirit. So that you know when the, when the timing is right. And you know that it's not too early, but it's not, it's not too late. You know when to talk, and you know when to be quiet. And so let me illustrate that for you. I, I, I've maybe even used this illustration before, but I don't care. This is my all-time favorite sermon illustration. And it, and it fits here, and it's, it's, it's a story about a little bird. Have I told you a story about a little bird before? All right, well, it's a story about a little bird. He's trying to fly south for the winter. And he got a little bit of a late start. And while he was flying south, it gets cold on him and his, his wings start to freeze up. And all of a sudden, they, they get heavy and they get to where he can't fly. His wings are froze, frozen. He coasted down and he lands in this pasture and he's getting worried. Because what's he going to do? He doesn't know what's going to happen. And then a cow comes along and drops a pile of manure right over the top of him. And this bird is like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, my wings are frozen, I can't move, and now I'm covered in manure. But it didn't take long before he realized that the manure was warm. It started to fall out his wings. So it was a little awkward, but it was working out for him. He started to feel good again, he's starting to get his wings flapping a little bit, he just needs to... Give that a little bit of time to work, and he maybe he's going to be able to fly again. And in his excitement, he starts chirping. He's, he's getting excited. He's chirping a song, belting it out as loud as he can. And there's, at that time, there's a cat walking through. I know it's a long story, but just wait. It's, it's getting somewhere good. There's, the, there's a cat walking through the pasture, and the, the cat hears this little bird singing, and he, he goes over and pulls him out of the manure and eats him. And that's the story. But there's a moral to it. And the moral to the story is just because someone puts you in a pile of manure doesn't necessarily make them your enemy. Second, just because someone pulls you out of a pile of manure, that doesn't necessarily make them your friend. But most importantly, when you're stuck in a pile of manure, be careful what you say and when you say it and how loud you say it. You see, if you speak a message that's not timely or as a leader, not biblical, you can get yourself in some big trouble. But Nehemiah's message was timely, and it was biblical. And because of that, the people said, let us 
rise up and build. But they had to hear it from him first. God was using a man, as he always does. He was using a man to make his burden known and his vision displayed. And so they had to hear it from Nehemiah first. And that should come as no coincidence to us. Because the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, that so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, our faith is built when we hear and when we respond to God's word. And that verse is in the context of salvation, but it's true after salvation as well. There's plenty of other verses that say that, like 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for example. A verse written to Christians says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye heard the word of God, which ye, which ye heard, when ye, when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And that's true because... Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the hearing of God, God's word, even when it comes through another man like Nehemiah, it should motivate you to move forward in faith. And that's what we're going to see, it's exactly what it does this morning. And in the text, we hear from Nehemiah three times. So this is the first time he speaks up, but in this context, he speaks up three times. He has three different messages. And, and those three messages motivate, and, and should motivate us as well, motivated the Jews and should motivate us to rise up and build. So my prayer for you this morning is that you hear all that God is tying, trying to teach you through this study in Nehemiah. Because as God said to all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he that hath an ear to hear, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So let's hear what the Spirit has to say to us right now. Uh, he, he, had, he absolutely has something to say to us. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm burdened by the message. I'm bur- you know, there's, there's, times, um, there's times in this role when I stand up here um, that, that I have immense feelings of, of, um, of just lack of qualification. And this morning is one of those mornings, and I, and I don't know why. I mean, they just, you know, they, just come a, they just come upon me for whatever reason. And all I can say is I'll be faithful to what God gives me, and I trust he has something for all of us. Um, so Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 17, it says, Then said I unto them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will you rebel against the king? And then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we come to you this morning in need of you. And certainly um, I need and I desire uh, your Holy Spirit to speak very clearly through me this morning. Lord, I pray that you move me aside and that that your spirit will do that work that, that only he can do to teach us your word. 
And so, Lord, I just I pray everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's glorifying and honoring to you. And, and Lord, we all have different needs. We all are at different spots in our life. And, Lord, you have something to teach every single one of us this morning. So I beg you to do it. And, Lord, I just um, ask it all in Jesus' name, uh, who is so worthy of all of our praise and service. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So now things are... are are starting to get exciting here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah takes his plan to the next level by making it public. As I told you a little bit ago, he speaks three times in, in these just few verses. In verse 17, we, said, we see it start out, says, Then said I unto them. Verse 18, Then I told them. And verse 20, Then answered I them. And the three things he has to say provide for us key motivators in serving the Lord. They absolutely should motivate you in your life to look within yourself and to see where you fit in these points. And then they should motivate you to do something about it. In rising up and building your life and your home and your family in this church. And the first key motivator that we find in verse 18 is the reproach of brokenness. The reproach of brokenness. Look at verse 17 again. It's in verse 17. It says, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Okay, now, what Nehemiah does here is he begins by pointing out the obvious. Because everybody knew that Jerusalem lay waste. The wall had been broken down for 141 years. This was no, this was, you know, this was no big revelation that he's say, saying, and he's letting him know. Everybody could see the gates had been burned, but it was still necessary to point out the obvious. Because while everybody there knew it, None of them had been motivated to correct it. And the wall had been down so long that at this point, 141 years, nobody even remembered it being up. And they had just come to accept it. Now, there had been, you know, the, the groups that had come before with Zerubbabel and Ezra, and under Ezra, they had tried to build back up a, a Jerusalem a little bit in the book of Ezra. And we looked at that last week when King Artaxerxes stopped it in Ezra 4.23, and we read that verse. But listen, that was easy. They allowed just the, the slightest bit of confrontation to stop them because they weren't really into it at that point. And they didn't even have a conversation with the opposition. And that very next verse, we read Ezra 4.23 last week. Look at what Ezra 4.24 says. It says, okay, so they get the letter. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The letter came and they were like, okay, I guess we're done here. And they were done. Until Nehemiah came to town 13 years later. And as he was pointing out the obvious to them, I want you to pay attention to the, to the very words that he used. He starts with a jab because he's going to set them up for the knockout punch. He's bringing the cross in a little bit. And he starts with the word GC. And again, he's saying, listen, we all see it. We all know this. 
You can see the distress and the problem just as well as I can. But, but what he was doing, and, and we'll see by the time we get to the end of this verse, is he wasn't just asking them to see with their physical eyes. He wanted them to see with their spiritual eyes. He wanted them to look it with, through that lens. Because seeing th- things through spiritual eyes, through a spiritual lens, is what leads to change. That is how you get lasting change. And we know this because Lamentations 3.51 says, Mine eye affecteth mine heart because of all the daughters of my city. And when God gets a hold of your heart, then you got something. Now, if you're, you're just acting on emotion, a lot of people will act on emotion. And change will come through emotion through the emotion of the moment or the emotion of a missions trip or whatever it might be. And that emotion will grip them and so they'll be committed and devoted to change. But if it never makes its way from emotion to the heart, it will not last. Lasting change has to occur in the heart. So Nehemiah wanted them to see what was going on. That, that was the jab. And the cross, the knockout punch, is at the end of verse 18. He said, look around and see this mess. And let's fix it so that we be no more a reproach. And that word reproach means disgrace or shame. And and here is what you need to understand. Here is what he was telling them. The situation of their city not only discredited them, but it dishonored the God that they professed to love and serve. 2 Chronicles 6.6 says, But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. You see, God attached his very name to that city. It was his chosen city in the midst of his chosen nation. Psalm 48, 1 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Guess what that is? In the mountain of his holiness. That city is Jerusalem. That mountain is Zion, which is in Jerusalem. It sat just outside those city walls that Nehemiah was going to rebuild. And Psalm 132, verse 13 says, For the Lord hath chosen Zion, it's Jerusalem. He hath desired it for his habitation. And I understand the prophetic implications of that verse. But the fact is that even historically, Jerusalem was the city that represented God, the name of God, and the habitation of God. And the fact that due to their idolatry, The Jews had allowed that glorious city to be broken down and they had been taken captive was a reproach. It was a disgrace to God and all that he was to them. And Nehemiah thought they should be ashamed. And he included himself. If you remember back to chapter 1 when Nehemiah was praying to the Lord, he included himself as part of the problem. He didn't say them. He said us. 
And that's the same thing here in chapter 2. It didn't matter that he had never been to Jerusalem before this trip. He still included himself. He said, ye see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lieth waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. That we be no more a reproach. And I know we're quick to think about the nation of Israel. It's kind of a bunch of idiots. And they were. But you know what? We are too. Because in this dispensation, God doesn't have a city. But he has a church. He has a body that every Christian in here is a part of. And guess what? As the body of Christ, we individually and collectively represent God, the name of God, and the habitation of God. We are saved through the name of Jesus. He indwells our spirit. In his spirit indwells us. We are literally the habitation of God on this earth today. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement at the temple of God with idols? It's no, there's no coincidence. What was Israel's downfall? It was idolatry. It was spiritual adultery through idolatry. It's no question when there's no coincidence when Paul talks about these things and talks about the Holy Spirit of God being inside us, how he, he connects it to, to the, how careful we need to be with idolatry. What agreement had the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we as the children of God, the ones who have God dwelling in us, should not live in brokenness, at least not brokenness in a broken state due to sin and due to idolatry. And when we do, it is a reproach to God. Because it doesn't have to be that way. If God is in you and therefore is to be the source and strength of your life, there ought to be something you can do to change the condition you find in your life. You're not helpless. You are not hopeless. Because you are not an orphan. Not of God as your heavenly father. You can change something. You can try something. You can start something to address the brokenness and dysfunction that you find in your life. And listen, it's the same with our homes and our families. They're a picture of the family of God. It should be a welcoming and a place of safety and refuge. And when the lost world sees us and sees our home and our family, it should be something that they desire to be a part of. And I'm not saying it should be perfect, because there's no such thing. Surprise me and my family at our house on any given night, and you'll see something less than perfect, that's for sure. But despite all the imperfections that exist in all of us, our lives, our homes, there should dwell the love of Christ. We shouldn't mess up that picture. And as a church, as the body of Christ, we should be doing the work of Christ's body. We should be walking and talking and reaching out to those who need healing. We should be unified. We should be working towards the same goal, God's glory, through the building of God's kingdom. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, 
And all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For at one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. We're all a part and we all have a role. And listen, when we don't take part in the body as God designed, we're breaking down the church brick by brick. And that is a shame. That is a disgrace to the Lord. There is a reproach that is associated with sinful brokenness and dysfunction. And when you see that in your life or in your home or in this church, it should motivate you to change. Hearing about the brokenness and being forced to look at it and look around and acknowledge the dysfunction, it's good for us. Because it should drive us to repentance. So seeing your sinful brokenness should drive you to a spiritual brokenness. Just like it did David after Nathan made him see his sin against the Lord with Bathsheba. And it led to his prayer of repentance that we find in Psalm 51 and verse 17. That chapter says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. You see, a, a broken city because of sin is a reproach to the Lord. But, but this is, here's how good God is. As long as that drives you to a broken spirit to get it right with him, he'll never despise that. He'll always accept that. So a broken city is a reproach to the Lord, but a broken spirit, because of it, is a cause for rejoicing. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. He's nigh, he's close. And as long as you have that, listen, we all fall into sin. Again, ain't one of us perfect in here. And so we all stumble and we all fall and trip over our own feet. You know, I, I've told you before, the Christian walk, as, 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 as much as we like to describe it as linear, it's not linear. It's up and down. It's three steps forward. It's two steps back. It's because we're a mess, all of us. So if, if you are a mess this morning, please don't feel like you're alone. You're just one of the group. But we all have a God that wants to heal it that wants to make it better. And as long as whatever the sin was that got you to this state of brokenness, as long as that leads you to a brokenness in your spirit, man, God's there. He is nigh. He's close. He wants to help. And so that is a cause for rejoicing. God will never, listen, God will never say no to a repentant heart. There is always solace in him. So if that is you today, just take that step. Allow the, the sin that you see to drive you to a broken spirit. Just don't be like the Pharisee in Luke 18, verses 11 through 14, that thought he was too good for repentance. Be like the publican in that story who knew he needed the Lord. Luke 18, 11 says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or... Even as this publican, 
I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And listen, life is hard. The Christian walk is hard. But God will never leave you. He, want, he wants you to be right with him. He wants it more than you want it. And, and he makes that possible. And Nehemiah talked about their reproach because he knew it would be a motivator in the job before him. But that wasn't all he talked about. After he spoke about the reproach of brokenness, in verse 18, he gave them the reason for building. Nehemiah 2.18, the second time Nehemiah talks, he says, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. See, Nehemiah is a good leader. He gives them the bad news first. And then he comes with the good news. So now you know the answer to that age-old question. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? The answer is always the bad news. The bad news first. Nehemiah tells them of the disgrace and the shame that they're causing the Lord because of the condition of the city. And he encourages and energizes them for the work of the Lord by assuring them that this is something God's a part of. And that's the punchline. I'll give it to you right here from the beginning of this point. The reason for building is because God's good hand was upon it. God wanted them to do it because he loved that city. It was his, his name and his habitation was, were attached to it. And as, as Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And that's obviously true for us as well. God was absolutely for them. He's absolutely for us. But in order to see that verse play out in your life, you have to step out in faith. We actually have to do the work. We have to do the work in order to see the Lord come through on his promise. So just think about that. It's not difficult, but you need to, you need to grasp that concept. But listen, you can do it knowing that his good hand is on it and on you. If you're stepping out in faith in a work that he wants you to do, know that his good hand is on it. And what better reason do you need than that? And Nehemiah knew this. He believed it with all his heart because he had seen it. He, he was actually referencing back to verse 8 and, and how King Artaxerxes had responded to his request to go to Jerusalem. He says it then in verse 8. He says, In a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, this is what he was asking for, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And so Nehemiah knew that the king, Artaxerxes, had already granted him something that was, it was a crazy request. And he knew, and he granted Why? Because God's good hand was upon it and was upon him. And so this gave Nehemiah confidence, and he wanted to pass that confidence along to the Jews listening to him. He wanted to use it as motivation. And listen, knowing that God's hand is upon you should motivate you to serve him. 
and get to work for him. And you can know that. You can know that his good hand is upon you if you are building for his glory. I mean, think about it. How cool is it to see God's good hand on your life and in your home and in your ministry? But if you don't try, you'll never know. And this gets to perspective. We talked about that last week, as so many things do. And we miss out on seeing the good hand of the Lord working in our life because we don't step out of faith, because we're scared of something. Don't let that be true of you. No, the good hand of God upon you is reason enough to do it in, face of, in the face of whatever you're, you're scared of. It shouldn't matter what other scary thing is out there. You know, I, I use it a lot, but I love the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And most of you know that story, and they were on trial to be thrown into a fiery furnace because they didn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol while in Babylonian captivity. And, and here's the thing that they knew. They knew that God's good hand was better and stronger than King Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And in Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18, they said, very popular verses, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. See, he uses out of, out of what? Out of thine hand. He knew God's hand was stronger. Deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And they didn't allow the fear or the overwhelming nature of the circumstance to deter them. And, and, and just think for a second, if they would have, what would have happened? If they would have bowed down. If they would have been like, you know what, you're right. Let's, 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 let's bow down. Let's just do it. Well, would, would God have forgiven them? He would have. They could have made things right with him just like David did. In Psalm 51, after his sin that we read about earlier. But just look at what they would have missed. Because the end result of that story was them spending the night in the fire without being burned and getting to hang out with the Son of God. That's what they would have missed. They would have missed God's good hand. Working on their behalf. But here's the sad thing. Some of you don't know that God has a good hand and that he wants to work on your behalf because you've never given him the opportunity to show you. So, so let me ask you, can you point to any evidence of the good hand of God on your life? I hope so. Here's what I know. I can see it in this church. Are you a part of it? I'm so thankful that God has put me here, is allowing me to serve in a ministry, a church where there is evidence of the good hand of God. And I'm not talking about buildings and budgets and pews and carpet. I'm not talking about any of that. That's what people who don't understand think about. I'm talking about souls saved and people discipled and developed and couples counseled and hearts healed and minds changed and lives transformed. And we need to keep going. We need to keep working and keep building for the future. But this is a great church. You're a great people. I, I bet that there is somebody sitting in your pew right now who came in here one way, but they're not the same today. They've been changed 
by the good hand of God through this church. And they may not be everything that they want to be for the Lord or for their family, but they're not who they used to be. That is evidence of the good hand of God on this place. It's like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. So there's evidence. The people, you, are evidence of God's good hand here. But are you a part of it? Are you a part of what God's doing? Can you be a witness to his working? Can you say, if you want to know if God can save you, I am the evidence. If you want to know if God can keep you, I am the evidence. If you want to know if God can use you, I am the evidence. God's hand is good. And he wants to use it in your life if you will just let him. And if you do, Know that you will be doing a good work. Nehemiah 2.18 says that very thing. The Bible says they strengthened their hands for this good work. The building of our lives and our families and our homes and our church is a good work. In fact, it's the best work in, in which to be involved. It's the best work you can ever be involved in. And that is a problem that we face today in Christianity, that we have with Christians today. Too many Christians are investing in vain works and not good works. And that's because those same Christians are settling for success instead of striving for greatness. You see, greatness is not worldly success. And worldly success is not necessarily great. I mean, if God has blessed you in that way, praise the Lord. Just be using it for him. But this is something that James and John had to figure out. They were looking for success instead of greatness because they wanted to sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in glory. But in in Mark 10, 43, look at what Jesus told them and, and all the disciples. He says, but so shall it be not among you. But whosoever will be what? Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. That is greatness. And it's about serving. It's about being a part of the good work of the Lord. So Jesus told them, if you want to rule in the kingdom, you've got to struggle to serve. If you want to sit where I sit, you've got to serve like I serve. If you want to sit in my seat, you've got to suffer like I suffer. See, it's not about being successful, not from a worldly perspective. It's about serving your way into greatness. It's called a work for a reason, but it's a good one. It's a good one. And I, and I know you might not hear that in a lot of churches today, but the truth is the biblical doctrine focuses on a substitutionary sacrifice. Bible doctrine says Jesus suffered in order to save you, but now that you're saved, you are called to serve. Bible doctrine says God is not trying to make you successful. God wants to make you holy. God wants you involved in his good work. That's what his good hand is touching. And that is reason enough to build. But there's one more. There's one more time that Nehemiah speaks out. And, that we, and in, in that we get our third motivator. And that is the response to battle. 
the response to battle. Because in verse 19, our buddies Sanballat and Tobiah show back up. And this time, they found someone else to drag along with them. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I and said unto them, Here's his response to this fight, to this battle. The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Listen, this is good stuff, man. This is awesome. Like that, just reading that doesn't get you a little bit excited. I don't know. I mean, so now we have three, um, three enemies. They send Bound Tobiah. They grab this guy Geshem. And not only that, we, we see they're more aggressive in their attack, right? The, this begins the enemy's progression against Nehemiah and the work of the Lord. And we'll, we'll see it when we get to chapter 4, really ramp up. Uh, but in chapter 10 of, of chapter 2, it says they were grieved in their heart, right? Because but, 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 nothing was going on, but they had heard what Nehemiah wanted to do. And so they were grieved in their heart. Now Nehemiah makes it public, and people are rallying behind him, and now they're laughing and despising. And they're trying to institute fear by accusing them of breaking the law, even though it wasn't. I'm not sure what the deal is about people telling you things are against the law when there's no such law in the books, but that's neither here nor there. And, and what we're going to see starting in chapter 4 is that, is that once the work is ongoing, they get even more aggressive. Up to the point of trying to kill Nehemiah in chapter 6. Or, or as Nehemiah says it, they wanted to do me mischief. <laughs> and listen, this progression is something that you always see in the enemy's attack. He will ramp it up the more serious you get. So you must be ready for it. You know, we read Romans 8.31 a little bit ago. This says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And I love, I love that verse. It's so true. But, but you should know that when God is for you and you're doing the good work of the Lord, you'll get the answer to that rhetorical question. You'll learn really quickly who is against you. So you got to be ready. And Nehemiah tells you how to be ready in his response to battle in verse 20. And here it is. It's super simple. It's trust and obey and put the enemy in his, in his place. Trust and obey and put the enemy in his place. And again, if that doesn't excite you and motivate you just a little bit to be involved in the work of the Lord, then I don't know what will. Listen, Nehemiah is a man's man. And for all the men out there, I, I, I promise you I'm not trying to, uh, to appeal to your flesh in this. But I recognize that sometimes that's a fine line. But doesn't that do something to you on the inside? It does me. And I love that he doesn't even address their questions. They ask, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? And he completely ignores those questions and tells them that he trusts the Lord and they're just going to obey. And God's going to prosper them. Again, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in Daniel chapter 3, right, that we saw earlier. And in verse 16, we read verses 17 and 18 of that chapter. But in verse 16, we see their response to the king at the beginning of their response, whether they were going to bow down or not. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. It's not even a consideration. 
We're not, you're asking us a question that we're not going to answer. We're just going to trust the Lord. And listen, the truth is that sometimes people don't deserve a response. Oh, Lord, that we could learn that when it comes to social media. Some of you, shame on you. But to be fair, sometimes they do. We see both scenarios in back-to-back verses in Proverbs 26. This is kind of interesting. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. But then the very next verse, look at what verse, verse 5 says. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. So which one is it? Answer not a fool or answer a fool? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> and we talked about this um, when, when Paul was answering his critics in 2 Corinthians. And it's, it's, it's usually related to who you are defending. If somebody is saying something against the Lord that is, that is damaging to his testimony or your ministry, you should defend that. Don't let them be wise in their own conceit. If, if it is something that is damaging to the Lord's name, that is damaging to, to your ministry as the, the Lord's good hand is upon you, because that's ultimately damaging. So if there's a, a risk in people not being involved and not being a part, okay, well, listen. Speak up on the Lord's behalf. But if they just say something about you, or if they just say something you don't like, well, you are supposed to be dead. So leave that alone. Just trust the Lord and obey. They don't even have to know why you're doing what you're doing. You do not need to give them your justifications. I mean, Nehemiah could have debated his enemies and proved that what they were doing is legal. He had the papers to prove it. That would have just given them more influence. They did not deserve that. And the way Nehemiah responded to them is very motivating to me. It gets me fired up a little bit. He just takes a stand. He doesn't get caught up in the distractions. He just takes a stand. And it's the same command we have today. Ephesians 6.10. says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that she may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And this is why it's important. There's that fine line between the spirit and the flesh. You have to put on the armor of God that is walking in the spirit. And if you're standing in your flesh, well, listen, you're, you will get knocked down. But if you put on the armor of God, you can stand. Down in verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. And we've talked about this before, but it's important because we... we we usually go about the right, not usually, sometimes we go about the right thing the wrong way because we don't understand exactly what the Bible has to say. So we know, and we've talked about this before, but repetition is the price of learning. You have to get it. You have to understand it so that you know how to respond in certain situations. We have three enemies, right? We know this, the devil, the world, and our flesh. And when you study those out, there's different responses that we're supposed to do. The fight is with our flesh. Study it out. I've done it. The fight is with the flesh. Every time that you see that, okay, that's a battle. That is a fight. When it comes to the battle with Satan and even the world, our external enemies, the commands we're given are stand or flee. It depends on the circumstance. Certain things we need to flee from. But everything else, we're to stand. It doesn't command us to fight. It says stand. 
And so Nehemiah stands. He isn't fighting his flesh here. He's fighting Satan himself. And that is the fight. I mean, that's, that, but that's the proper response. And, and in fact, he, he is standing to Satan himself. Because we don't have time to go through all of the verses. We'll get to it maybe when we get to chapter 4. But those three guys here in Nehemiah 2.19, they picture the unholy trinity. The devil, the false prophet, and the antichrist. And you can, like I said, we'll get into that maybe when we get into chapter 4, um, depending on the time. But, but back to the stand Nehemiah takes. The stand was, here it was, you hold no authority here. Nehemiah said, you have no portion, no right, no memorial in Jerusalem. And that's because he was dealing with a Moabite and Sanballat and Ammonite and Tobiah and an Arab in, in Geshem. These are mortal enemies of Israel. And we can know that Sanballat was, I know it doesn't say that Sanballat was a Moabite, but it says he was a Horonite. And a Horonite from the city of Horonam, which is in Moab. We see that in Isaiah 15, verse 5. This says, My heart shall cry out for Moab, his fugitives shall flee unto Zor, and Heifer of three years old. For by the mounting up of Luith, with the, right, with the weeping, shall they go up. For in the way of Horonam, they shall raise up a cry of destruction. So Horonam was a city within Moab. So he was a Moabite. And the Moabites, the Ammonites, were bad news. The Moabites lived just east of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites occupied the countryside just north of Moab. They were both tribes related to the blood of Abraham as they descended from his nephew Lot. But they, they got there, they were born through an incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters. You can see that in Genesis chapter 19, verses 37 and 38. And given the incestuous origins of Moab and Ammon, we should, we should not be surprised. The contact with them often brought much trouble for Israel. They sinned like their parents. So Moab led Israel into Baal worship on its way into Canaan in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. Both the Ammonites and the Moabites hired Balaam to curse Israel as they journeyed toward the promised land and were thus forbidden to enter into the Lord's congregation, it says in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4. So their involvement, so these guys, we have a Moabite, we have an Ammonite, and we have an Arab. Their involvement with Baal and Balaam and Balak, who are also a picture of the unholy trinity. Maybe, again, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 4. It gives you an idea of who these guys really are. And since Nehemiah knew Numbers 25 and he knew Deuteronomy 23, he knew that they had no right nor claim to anything in Jerusalem. So he told them. And he moved forward with the Lord's work. And I take the time to point all that out. Because here's what you need to hear from that. There are too many Christians today that have allowed Satan into areas of their life where he has no right. And he has no claim and no portion, no memorial. Not anymore. Not to you. And instead of taking a stand like Nehemiah, you've let him in. And if you are a blood-bought child of God, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And you have a new identity. 
And while Satan had dominion there before you were saved, he does not anymore. You are Christ. So why do you keep allowing him in? Take a stand like Nehemiah and just say no. You have no right here. So stop doing it. Your life was worth too much to Christ. And it cost him too much for you to just give it away to the enemy. No, stand. He has no portion. He has no right to you. And what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Don't do it. Get it right with him and don't give Satan a place. Don't make no provision for the flesh. It's the pro- like so many Christians, I see it over and over and over, and they want to get their life right and they want to serve the Lord, and they'll close the front door to Satan, but they leave the back door cracked just in case. Just in case. And and he comes right in. He just walks right in. He will every single time. He has no right to you. So don't let him have it. And see the brokenness that he causes. And understand the shame that that brings to the Lord. And then allow that to motivate you. To take a stand against him and, and do the good work of the Lord. And knowing that when you do, that his good hand will be upon you so you can stand for him. You can trust him and obey him. And you can know that it will be worth it all in the end. You have that promise from the Lord. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And I just want to ask you if you're able to see any brokenness in your life. And if so, will you then see what God wants to do? And tell the enemy that he's no longer allowed to control you and then get to work on the Lord's business. Or maybe you're out there today and you don't know the Lord is your Savior. You've never accepted a sacrifice for you and you're not saved. If you're not sure, will you ask yourself that? Will you ask yourself that question? If you need to get saved? Because the Bible says that if you're not saved, you're on your way to hell eternally separated from God. And all getting saved means is you recognize that you're a sinner and you believe in faith. That Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died for your sin as the perfect sacrifice accepted by God the Father, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And you exchange, in prayer you just ask him, you just exchange your sinful life for his perfect sinless life. You can't do it by any work of your own, you can only do it by placing your faith, your belief in him and what he did, that he died on the cross for you. You You can accept Christ as your Savior right now. By just praying to him, letting him know that you're a sinner, asking him to come into your heart and into your life and save you. He will do it just like that. And if you have any questions, man, come talk to us. We would love to talk to you. Come down while we're singing this song. If you, have, if you are a Christian and you have, something right to get, you have something to get right with the Lord, man, do it today. What are you waiting on? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for your word. And thank you for, for how you use it in, in my life. And I know how you use it in other people's lives. And thank you for your good hand. Um, and, and, and I pray that your Holy Spirit encourages us and motivates all of us to get involved in your good work today. Um, you will bless it. Your good hand is upon it. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you're convicting them even now for their need for a Savior. Lord, we love you. 
We thank you for everything. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.